Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. Basically, in my experience, and, I, and I've asked, uh, I've, I've talked to some friends of mine about this, uh, it really is something that you can internalize just as well as the other things. And it really does correspond to the costs of the computation you're doing in a sort of in a in sort of a better fit uh, than, than the C++ world. C++ is trying to give you the illusion of a value-oriented world where assignment just means that you've got a copy. But that's not actually the world that we live in. We live in a world where we care about memory, where we care about um, time spent copying things. The mismatch with reality is actually on C++'s side here. And what Rust is doing is it's simply taking the, the real costs that you are always paying and making them show up in, in the type system. Hey, this is the second interview with Jim Blandy, co-author of Programming Rust. Today, we get into the details of borrowing and ownership. If you haven't listened to the first interview, you should probably check it out first. Today, we get down into the actual weeds of how Rust handles ownership and borrowing and how it's different from other languages. Uh, There's also at least one joke about linear algebra that went way over my head. Enjoy. So, Jim, uh, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So last time, I think you did a really good job of explaining, um, I think, why why Rust is important and, and like what job it's it's trying to uh, solve. Mm-hmm. And for for me, like to kind of understand how that actually works, I think it's great to uh, to actually like talk about examples and, and see how that works, like in practice down sure. at the actual level of, sure. of code and, and memory mapping. So. Yeah, I want to dive into some of that today. Um, I feel like this is becoming maybe the world's smallest book club where I just bring you on and ask you questions <laughs> as I read the book. <laughs> yeah, well, as long as people have a good time, that's fine. <laughs> First of all, I made it further through the book and the book now has a coffee stain on it, which I think shows that that I've actually, like that, that's how you know it's going it, to it, it's, it's a mark of honor. Yeah, it's got to be like frayed <laughs> a little bit. And somebody put something on Twitter that shows the picture of their kid drooling on it. And I, I think that's pretty good too. <laughs> so yeah, for our listeners, if you haven't listened to the, the first episode, I recommend you go back to it and we'll just jump in uh, with the specifics. So memory management strategies, um, what I'm used to pre-reading this Rust book is, is there's languages like C, um, where you kind of have to free the memory yourself. And then um, where I spend most of my time, which is in garbage collected languages, where um, the freeing just happens and I don't even worry about it. It's like a runtime uh, property. So where does Rust fit in this kind of spectrum? Okay, so so Rust actually uh, sort of threads a third way between uh, those two extremes, right? Uh, the, the, the premise, both, uh, both C and uh, the, the rest of the languages, uh, both C and C++ versus the rest of the language, they both have the same, the same kind of problem, which is that um, you want to make sure that uh, you, want to, you want to make sure that, that, that the, thing that's, the thing that's getting pointed to outlives the pointer, right? Um, and there are actually two ways to phrase that. You can say um, uh, the thing that the, you can say that the referent has to outlive the pointer, or you can say that the pointer must not outlive the referent, right? And so the way that almost every language solves this um, is by saying, look, we're just going to periodically scan 
all of your memory and find every pointer that could possibly be used and make sure that we only recycle the things that are never pointed to, right? And that's that's garbage collection, right? Mm-hmm. And garbage collection has this really nice property, which is that you know it guarantees that you never have a pointer that's pointing to memory that's been recycled. Uh, and that's, that's essential for security. Um, and, and Java was the language where garbage collection uh, went mainstream. I mean, you know, Lisp had, had it from, from the beginning. Uh, but um, until that point, people were kind of uneasy about it, and they weren't sure whether garbage collection was, you know, suitable for use in a serious systems programming language. Um, but then Java, the, the Java showed that that it was that it was something that could really be made be made workable. And the reason, one of the reasons was they wanted Java. Java was designed to be a language that could be shipped across the network, and it could run on, you know, your web browser. It could run on a on a handheld device, and so they needed that that security uh, property. And garbage collection is the way to satisfy it. Now, the problem with that approach is that uh, the the way it goes wrong is if you have a pointer sitting around to something that you've forgotten about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, even if your program is never actually going to use it again, the garbage collector can't tell that or often can't tell that. And the garbage collector will blindly retain everything that that pointer points to and anything that, that can be reached from that pointer. So if you've got some, you know, uh, like what happens in JavaScript all the time is somebody will set an, you'll set an event handler on something, right? And you'll forget about it. I mean, event handlers in JavaScript are kind of like it's really hard. It's really easy to sort of lose track of them, and so you've got some. You've got an event handler sitting around, and the event is never going to happen, and it's pointing to a closure that it's going to run if this event ever happens, and then that closure happens to have closed over some other variable that you that you weren't expecting. Um, and suddenly, the next thing you know, you've entrained the entire text of the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? And, and it'll, it'll never, it'll never go away. And you don't know this. And so, there are tools in JavaScript uh, for like saying, "Hey, who is holding on to this? How? how why is this thing reachable?" Um, that that the, that the that the modern um, you know web developer tools. Uh, provide provide ways to, to answer questions like that because that's the kind of problem you run into. You run into what amounts to leaks, right? But leaks are safer than dangling pointers. <laughs> in in C++, uh, the programmer gets to decide when something gets freed, right? And mm-hmm. what that means is that if they are wrong, if then they free something while that, you know, this unexpected pointer is still around, then that pointer is now sort of a, a, a live wire. Uh, it's, a, it's a bomb waiting to go off. Um, and uh, you, you end up with, uh, you know, crashes or security holes um, caused by uh, people accidentally using pointers to memory that's, that's been recycled. And so there, there's this tension, right? One, you want to make sure that the language is, you know, is, is trustworthy, right? And you want to keep objects around for a long time. You want to keep objects around as long as they, they could be used. Um, but then two, you want to leave the programmer in charge of how much memory, they're using, right? If the programmer believes that their copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica is no longer necessary, it should go away at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And and so uh, basically, C and C plus uh, plus give you the second property, right? That you are in control of when when memory gets used and when it gets freed, and ba- basically all the other languages uh, fall on the side of of safety. And then the failure mode is that uh, you don't get you don't get dangling pointers, but the failure mode is that you get leaks. Um, and so neither of those compromises 
are acceptable for Rust. Rust has to be a safe language, and it also has to, as a systems programming language, it also has to leave the developer in charge of when memory uh, gets gets freed and when it goes away. And this is actually really nice uh, because uh, it's re- because when I work in JavaScript, I actually feel really uncomfortable if I'm going to build up some big table or or some some big kind of map. Um, I, I've, I, I'm always concerned that if I don't manage it very carefully, that I'm going to end up, you know, creating uh, something that's going to bloat over time. Like the longer you have this page open, or the longer you have this this uh, this applet open, or whatever, uh, it, the, the more memory it's going to consume, right? And so I end up sort of going over my code with a fine tooth comb to look very carefully at what I'm retaining and what I'm pointing to, right? And mm. and in the end, that kind of care looks a lot like the same kind of care that a C++ programmer has to invest in making sure that, that their pointers are valid, right? And so it's actually just two sides of the same coin, right? It's just that mm-hmm. in the JavaScript case or in the, in the GC case, the failure mode is, is relatively benign. Um, I, I'm not sure that a lot of JavaScript programmers are are as concerned. Like maybe they, maybe they should be. But <laughs> yeah, well, the evidence suggests <laughs> that, that many people are not too concerned about this, right? So, so neither of those compromises is acceptable for Rust, and so Rust has to actually a make sure that your programs, make sure that your pointers are always legit, while b still leaving you in control of um, when memory uh, when when memory gets freed. And it takes a uh, sort of there's a, there's a two level approach. Um, the first step is to make sure that every value in the system has a very clear and obvious owner, right? Mm-hmm. We are accustomed to thinking about the heap in um, in a language like like Java or in a language like Haskell or in a language like JavaScript. We're accustomed to thinking of the heap as just a big graph of objects, right? And like you could have you could build any kind of structure in that graph you want. Um, but what that means is that it's not clear to the system at all, and there is no source level indication of how long different parts of that graph are supposed to are supposed to live. And so Rust says that every value must have a clear owner, and usually, and, and basically, all of these owners are rooted in uh, local variables. Right, variables that are local to a call. Rust has global variables, but their use is very restricted, and um, it's actually they're actually kind of a pain. Um, so, for most intents and purposes, you can say that that Rust doesn't use global variables, and that means that the ownership of every object in a Rust system is rooted somehow, somewhere, in in some local variable. Um, now, that means that if you've got you know if you've got a local variable, it's a type string. Well, it's pretty obvious that the local variable owns that string, right? Um, and But like, what if you have a hash table entry? Well, you have a big table of, of, of strings, right? Well, then you'd say that the hash table owns the keys and values that are stored in it, and then something else owns the hash table. But the keys and values are uniquely owned by the hash table, and the hash table is uniquely owned by something else. Uh, you know, you can go up and up from from the owned value back to its owner, and eventually you find yourself rooted in some in some local variable. Um, and uh, and what this means is that since every value, okay, so maybe I didn't say this, but every value also has a unique single owner. Right, which is a little weird. Just one on. Just one, right? There's, there's, there's always a very clear uh, single owner, and th- there are ways to break out of that. You can. There's actually an explicit reference counted pointer type, 
And that's something where you, you know, obviously, if you have many of these reference counted pointers, it's only when all of them go away that the object gets freed, that the thing they're pointing to gets freed. Um, but that's something that you have to ask for explicitly. And so the standard, the usual behavior in Rust is that every value has a unique owner. And when that owner goes away, when that variable goes out of scope, or when that element is removed from the hash table, or when the, the, the vector has that element deleted from it, um, when the owner goes away, the value is freed at that time. And so that's how you get control over you know, the use of storage. It's like your variables go out of scope at the end of the block if you're not returning them. Um, you're, you know, when it's when you delete an element or when you remove an element from a data structure that its contents get freed. Uh, freeing memory always happens in response to some specific thing that you did in your program. Right, and so that's 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 the way Rust puts the developer in control of the lifetime of the values. Now, that model has the merit of simplicity, uh, but it's really limited, and you can't actually write real programs that way. And so, there are two ways that Rust sort of relaxes the constraints on this. And the, the first way is um, that you can move values from one owner to another. For example, uh, a vector, so we suppose you've got a vector of strings, right? The vectors pop method, it takes the last element and it removes it from the vector and it returns it to you. Okay. When it returns that value, that's not simply, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not just like a returning a pointer to it. It's actually moving ownership of the value from the vector. The vector no longer owns it and it uh, transfers ownership to the caller of pop. So whoever called pop, now they are the owner of that element. Um, and so if you imagine you're popping off an integer, then this is kind of silly to talk about. But if you imagine you're talking about a vector of strings, and these strings could be really big, mm -hmm. then it makes sense to say, oh, now I own this string, and I'm, you know, I'm responsible for, for deciding how long it lives. Um, or you know, a vector, you get a vector of anything, you get a vector of gigantic hash tables, right? So in, in all those situations, um, moving ownership is something that, that makes sense. And, and it preserves this property of, of unique ownership, uh, that the, the value used to be owned by the vector, and now it is owned by the caller of pop. Um, but, but it had a single owner at every moment. Um, I, think, uh, I think you picked pop for a reason, because um, what, what if... Uh... So I'm imagining pop, you have some sort of memory where the array is, and now we're taking off the last element, but, mm -hmm. but what about something in the middle? Um, okay. Yeah. So it turns out that Rust does not have any primitives, which would allow you to move a value out of the middle of a vector. And so this leads us to the third kind of access, right? I said there, were, there are various ways that we relax it. Um, the first is moves, right? That you can move ownership of value from one thing to another. And whenever we build up complicated values, we're, we're basically building them up one move at a time. The second way that we relax the rules is that we let you borrow values, right? Mm -hmm. There is a way to leave the owner of a value undisturbed. The, the owner doesn't change but you get to temporarily grant access to that value to somebody else by borrowing a reference to the value. And so when you refer to an element in the middle of a vector, right, mm -hmm. what you get when you subscript a vector, the, the subscripting operator returns a reference to that element, right? It borrows a reference to that element. Now, references are, they are pointers, but they are constrained. They are constrained by their type 
to not outlast the thing that they are borrowed from. So if you have a vector and then you, you, know, you refer to some element of that vector, uh, the type of that reference that you get to that element uh, says, marks it as something that must not outlast the vector. So if, you, if the vector goes out of scope, the, the reference that you borrowed to its element has to have gone out of scope first. Or if the vector gets moved away, you can't move that vector to some other owner until you have until the, the, the reference that you borrowed to its element has gone away. Right? So references are statically constrained to only live for a certain restricted part of the program. Uh, and that's what Rust, that's how Rust makes sure that references uh, are always they're always still pointing to something that's still there. So you've got owning things and owning references, owning pointers can can last forever, right? You can move them around. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, borrowed, uh, but, but uh, references uh, are constrained to live within a certain lifetime. They can't outlast the thing that they point to. Actually, maybe we uh, it would make sense to talk about an example. So just for, for movement, um, there's this example in your book um, where you went through, um, so, so you had a, a Python example with, uh, oh, yeah. a, an yeah, yeah. array of strings yeah. and then you had a C plus plus example. Yeah. Maybe could you describe that for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so there's, there's a, what, what this part of the book is after is ta it's talking about this, this ownership thing. And one of the things that I wanted people to notice was that even the very simple idea of assignment, right? Assigning one variable to another variable. Is actually something uh, that where the, where the meaning of that uh, varies a lot from one language to another. Um, in Python, uh, all of your variables are reference counted. So the example that I use, I say, well, let's say that we have um, a list of strings. Well, okay, the list has three elements, and it's got this little array of three elements that's allocated in the heap, and then each one of those elements points to a string, and the string has this text that's allocated in the heap, um, and the list has a reference count on it that says how many things are pointing to it. And so when you first create this list, it's the reference count's gonna, gonna be gonna, gonna be one, right? And then mm. the reference counts and all the strings that it points to are gonna be one because they're each pointed to by um, by the by the vector's elements or by the list's elements. Um, now if you assign that list to another variable, the only thing that happens in memory is that the reference count the, 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 the pointer gets assigned to the new variable, and then the reference count on the list gets bumped up. So now it says, okay, I've got two pointers to me. And when you assign, if you assign that list to a third variable, then the reference count will jump up to three. Um, and what that means, uh, the way Python has done this, it means that assigning from one variable to another is very efficient, right? You're just copying a pointer over and, and incrementing a reference count. Um, but mm -hmm. it does mean that deciding when to free a value is kind of complicated, right? You can have pointers into this structure from anywhere in the program, and any one of them will actually keep the structure alive. And although Python does use reference counting for most of its management, uh, it does have to fall back on a garbage collector in order to decide when to get rid of things in the end, because there are certain structures that, that reference counting doesn't handle correctly. Okay. So you need a, you need a garbage collector to handle this willy-nilly reference pointing to the same? In general. In general. In general. Um, not in this particular example, but in general, you're going to have to use. Uh, you're going to have to look over the entire program's memory to decide whether anything's pointing to this, and so that means you've got to have a garbage collector. So, if you write the equivalent program now in C++, 
uh, the story is very different, right? Let's suppose you have a standard vector uh, of standard strings, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and you you create it, and it's got it's got three elements or whatever. And at first, this looks exactly like the Python situation. You've got a heap allocated array that's got three elements, and um, each one of those elements points to a string, and each string has a, a buffer uh, in memory, heap allocated buffer in memory. Now, in C++, when you assign that vector to another vector, the, the rules of C++ say that assigning a vector makes a fresh copy of the vector. Mm. And making a fresh copy of the vector means making a fresh copy of each of its elements. And then C++ says that assigning, uh, that making a fresh copy of a string, uh, these days it says making a fresh copy of a string makes a, a fresh heap copy of that string. So if you take that list of three strings and you assign it to two other variables, you will have copied the entire uh, thing over twice. And so you will end up with three different vectors and nine different strings. <laughs> right. And so this is kind of surprising, right? Because you'd think that, I mean, assignment is such a primitive operation and it's the same for like passing values to functions, um, you know, or, or, you know, building data structures. These, these are all, you know, this, this, this fundamental, uh, assignments like operation and in python it's really cheap to assign but then you have to have a complicated thing to track when to get rid of things and in c++ assignment can consume arbitrary amounts of time and memory right <laughs> uh, now the benefit of c++ is that when one of those variables goes out of scope it always clears away it always frees everything that it owns right and so the 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 life the copying is expensive and the copying is expensive and the lifetimes are simple right and there's there's observable behavior differences here, right? Because in, in Python, I can make a change to my copy, and the original one is also changed. Yes, exactly. The sharing is evident. The sharing is is visible to the program, um, and and it's actually the, the the this implicit copying behavior in C plus plus is sort of surprising to programmers a lot because one, it's not what most other languages do. Most languages behave like Python. Um, Java behaves the same way. JavaScript is the same way, um, uh, and so. C++, it's sort of a, a foot gun in C++ that you may end up uh, inadvertently making expensive copies of something that you hadn't expected to be making a copy of at all. Um, there was a... <laughs> it turns out that at one point somebody measured uh, the allocator activity in the Chrome, in Google's Chrome browser, and it turned out that half of its calls to malloc were from standard string. Were, they were just caused by, by copying standard strings around. It was responsible for half of the malloc traffic. Um, and it's, I'm not saying that that's, uh, it's not memory consumption, but it's just the number of calls to malloc. So this ends up, and that certainly wasn't really necessary. It wasn't what they had intended. It's just the way that things ended up um, as a consequence of, the, of the, the, the stock behavior of C++. So you say that this C++ copy is uh, unintuitive, but uh, I found the Rust behavior unintuitive. <laughs> okay, well, so the Rust behavior sort of navigates a, a middle path between these two things. It doesn't want to use a garbage collector. It doesn't want to require that you, that you do something. Uh, the garbage collectors are sort of unpredictable in practice. People love them when they work, and then when they don't work, it's bewildering. Uh, so, um, so and Rust wants to leave the programmer in control of the performance of their program. And so it doesn't use a garbage collector. Um, and uh, it doesn't want to, uh, it, it, it doesn't want to do the copies that C++ does. So what Rust does is when you um, assign 
a vector of strings. You can have exactly the same type. It looks exactly like the C++ in memory. Um, but when you assign that vector to a new variable, uh, it will move the value. That is, when you say, you know, S equals T, you're, you're moving the value of mm -hmm. T into S, right? T becomes uninitialized. It no longer has a value. As far as the compiler is concerned, that is now an uninitialized variable. And S now has taken over the value that used to be in T. It's taken ownership. And again, it's preserving this single owner property. Um, and it's actually sort of, like I say, it's sort of uh, the middle way because ownership is still clear, right? Now S owns the value. If S goes out of scope and you haven't moved the thing someplace else, that's when you free it. That's when you free the, the, the value. Um, but at the same time, assignment is cheap. All you did is you copied over the, 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 the header of the value. Um, in, the, in the case of a vector, right, you've got these three words that say, here's the pointer to the heap-allocated buffer, and then here's the capacity, the amount of actual space it's got available, and here's the actual length, the number of elements stored in it presently. And when you do a move of a vector, it's only those three words that get moved over. Uh, the memory and heap, the memory and the heap, the elements just sit where they are, right? So the assignment is cheap, ownership remains clear, and the only consequence, the only downside is that you can't use the source of the assignment anymore. It's had its value moved out, and it's now uninitialized. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that is uh, counterintuitive. These are called linear types uh, because um, the idea is that you don't have this sort of uh, forking of, you know, where a value suddenly splits into two values or a value suddenly has two owners. Every value is sort of makes a linear flow through, through time. Um, it's actually affine types, but that's a bit of, that's sort of a type theory pun that's we probably shouldn't talk about <laughs> <laughs> um it's a pun sorry no oh. <laughs> no you said we shouldn't talk about it now, now okay. talk about well, so so here's the idea so so you have these linear types and these linear types were were invented as a simplification of or as a restriction of 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 logic right it, it originated as people are talking about logics and uh, you know, where you, okay, if you know that A implies B, you know, B implies C, then you can prove that A implies C, right? And so uh, people just, I, I don't quite know what the motivation was, but somebody invented something called linear logic, which, uh, where you only get to use a fact once. If you know that A implies B, and then you use that fact in a proof, you can't use it again. <laughs> and it's like, it, that doesn't correspond to anything in logic at all, right? It, because like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if something's true, then it's true. Um, but it, uh, but the nice thing is that it does correspond to uh, values in memory, right? That is, if you have, if you have modified, a, uh, if you have a big array and you modify it, you store a value and some element of it, the prior value of the array is no longer available. You can't use it anymore. Uh, and so if you want your logic to serve as like a, a backing for a type system, then that's exactly the property that you want, right? You only get to use this uh, value once because you've side affected it. And now the old value of it is gone. You do a destructive update to something. Well, something got destroyed. Um, and that's, that's what the linear types is. And so then somebody else, um, and, and so, so linear types were a, like I say, they were a restricted version of the logic, and they also required that every variable be used once. Oh, I see. You had to use it. Right? So, yeah, you have to use it exactly once, and that's why it's linear, right? Nothing nothing collapses, uh -huh. nothing, uh, nothing gets doubled, right? Um, 
And, uh, and so, so, you know, if you didn't want to use it, you could always just pass it to a function like drop. But the idea was that, um, again, this is going to be used to model um, v values like arrays that needed to be updated destructively. And if they were big, heavy, expensive things to allocate, you wanted to make sure that when people freed them, they did so knowingly. And so the idea was that you would require them to drop uh, things explicitly too. And then it turns out that people don't really care about that. As long as a value doesn't get used twice, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's clear why you can't use, you know, why a destructive update means that you can't get at the old value anymore. Um, but it's, you know, it's actually fine if you just let the system go ahead and clean up things if you don't happen to use it at all. Um, and so when you relax linear types and uh, allow people to just drop values on the floor, well, it's sort of like linear, but better. Well, Okay, so in linear algebra, you can have a linear transformation, which is just like, say, if, if you're doing it in two, on, in two, two space, it's a, it's a two by two vector. But then you can't do translations in linear transformations. You can't actually mm -hmm. move the origin to a different spot. You can't move things around. Um, so if you do want a transformation that can move things around, you need to use what's called an affine transform. Right, and this is a two by three vector or a, a a three by three vector in in homogeneous coordinates, and and so an affine transformation in linear algebra is a generalization, a relaxation of a linear transformation. Ah, I see. And so <laughs> an affine type system is a relaxation or a slight generalization of a linear type system. And so it's this kind of stupid in joke, right? Um, <laughs> but that's that's where that and so so strictly speaking, Rust has an affine type system in that if you don't use a, a value when you get to the end of the block, if you didn't use it, it gets freed. Um, I shouldn't have asked you a joke where the punchline involves knowledge of linear algebra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that one's that one's pretty weedy. So, <laughs> so to bring it back, uh, so. Um, I'm not saying it's bad that uh, assignment's different, but I think that, you know, uh, there's a, there's a information theoretic perspective in which what you find surprising about a language is probably mm. the most important thing. And certainly this is a surprising thing that, that yep. Rust has changed what assignment means. Yes. Well, okay. So, so in, in my defense, in Rust's defense, first of all, I've pointed out that Rust, that uh, Python and C++ already disagreed drastically on what it meant. And so if, if Python and C++ are allowed to do drastically different things with assignment, then I think it's perfectly legit for Rust to choose yet a third way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, that the, the, the point of that, that what's surprising is an indication of sort of where the most information is being conveyed. Um, I mean, the thing is, when you think about it, C++ is a, is a mature language. You've got a lot of people putting a lot of energy into pushing that idea as far as it can go. And you know how local maxima are, right? You're not going mm -hmm. to get significant advances um, from uh, something as polished as C++, something as mature as C++. Um, you're not going to make significant advances along one axis without giving something else, giving up something else along another axis. Um, and so this is just this is just Rust's uh, one of the bets that Rust makes is that um, actually uh, this is something that people can learn to use and something that people can be productive in. And um, you know, learning to program wasn't really easy to begin with, right? When you were learning to program, you learned to internalize a whole lot of really strange stuff. And 
why does it always have to be the same strange stuff? Why can't we have some <laughs> new strange stuff? Um, and I, and, and uh, basically in my experience, and, I, and I've asked, uh, I've talked to some friends of mine about this, uh, it really is something that you can internalize just as well as the other things. Um, and it really does correspond to the costs of the computation you're doing in a sort of in a it's sort of a better fit than what uh, than, than the C world. C is trying to give you the illusion of a value oriented world where assignment just means that you've got a copy. Um, but that's not actually the world that we live in. We live in a world where we care about memory, where we care about um, time spent, uh, you know, copying things, and so the mismatch with reality is actually on C++'s side here. And what Rust is doing is it's simply um, taking the, the real costs that you are always paying and making them show up in the, in, in, in the type system. That makes sense. Um, so if back to your example, when I do this assignment, and so now it's a move. So my previous, my previous value is now uninitialized. So aren't I now reintroducing the C++ problem of you know, being able to access something that's uninitialized or that's been freed? Well, so 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 one of the things Rust forbids uh, you to use an uninitialized variable, right? I mean, you can declare a variable without setting its value. Um, you can say, you know, vector. I, I want I want v to be a vector of of, of strings, right? Um, and you don't actually have to provide an initial value at that point when you declare it. But Rust does require that every use, every read of that variable must be uh, it must it, you must be unable to reach that read from the declaration without first going through an assignment to it, right? That is every path from the declaration of the variable to a use of the variable has to be preceded by something that initializes it. Um, and so Rust is already doing a certain amount of sort of flow sensitive uh, detection of, you know, hey, it's tracking our, you know, where in this function, at which points is this value initialized, at which point is this variable not initialized. Um, and when you do a move, that, that variable becomes uninitialized at that point. And so you get a static error if you try to use it. You get a compile time error if you try to use a variable whose value you've moved from. And that's that's really something that, that that's something I haven't seen. Like the 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 table stakes on compilers have have been lifted up here, I think, to a to mm. a higher level than I'm used to. Mm. Yeah, I mean what's what's going on is that, that Rust is really what's going on is that Rust is really trying to say uh, we want to be we want to be a sound language, right? People talk about memory management as as the big thing, but really, what's going on is that Rust wants to be a sound language, uh, where if you have uh, if a variable has a type or if an expression has a type, that every value which could ever appear there as the value of that expression or as the value of that variable really has that type, and that sounds like a really modest promise. Almost, it's almost like tautological, right? Except C++ doesn't make that promise, right? Um, and so uh, the, the, you know, the, the tracking of what's initialized and what's not initialized um, is really just in service of making sure that, um, that, that you've met your sound, that, that, that the language is sound, right? Obviously, an uninitialized variable has a type, but it doesn't, rep doesn't hold a value that's been properly initialized of that type. And the memory stuff is really just, again, it's just a way of serving the, 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 the principle of soundness. If you want you know, dereferencing a pointer to have the type that, it, that the language says it does, you've got to make sure that that pointer is, is valid. Um, and, the, and the soundness is really what it's all aimed at. 
so I'm not sure about C++, but like uh, Java, for instance, has has nulls and they just say like that's that's just part of the the set of possible types that this can be. So this is an object and one of the possible object values is null. Um, how does Rust handle that? Well, so Rust actually takes Rust actually takes uh, a page from uh, Haskell and ML and, and I think another number of other languages like this um, and it says that pointers uh, can't be null. Um, Rust safe pointers are, are never null. Um, and if you want to have a nullable pointer, you just have to say it explicitly. Um, you have to. There's an option type, which is like um, I think it's maybe in Haskell, um, and I think it's also option in in ML. Um, and uh, what that means is that you don't have when you've got a nullable pointer. The type of that value is not pointer. It is option of some pointer type. And so you actually have to match on the option, or you have to do something to 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 check. Whether the thing, whether the pointer is actually present before you can use it, um, and so this is this is kind of a funny thing because unlike uh, the the moves and the borrowing and the references, uh, that stuff is really heavy, complicated, strange, uh, new uh, new type theory. Option making pointers non-nullable and then requiring people to use option when they do want a nullable pointer, that's really sort of straightforward. There's just you're not allowed that you can't there's no way to create a null pointer and when you do want to have something that's that may or may not be there you have to wrap it in an option uh and that it's it's really easy to understand um but it makes a huge difference uh in the code um one of the things that i find now when i work in c plus plus is uh you know i still work on uh firefox and and firefox has this huge c plus plus code base uh is that it's actually pretty scary uh, how often there are implicit, uh, implicitly nullable pointers that really are sometimes null under certain circumstances, and there's no indication of this. If you want to find out whether a pointer is safe to dereference in C++, you've got to hunt around. Um, if, if somebody left you a comment saying this pointer is always non-null, then that's really awesome. Um, but um, for the most part, you have to hunt around. You have to try to guess. You have to see if other people are checking for it to be null elsewhere. Um, but that's you know that's that's dicey, right? Because maybe they always maybe they already know. Maybe they checked previously. Um, it's not a sure thing. Uh, and so C plus is C plus plus code is really riddled with all of these invisible option values everywhere, and you don't know which ones they are. And it's really uh, it's really makes the language a lot harder to work in. Whereas it, when you're in Rust, if there isn't an option in that thing, then you know it's there, and it's much much simpler. And when you do put an option in Rust in, in Rust code, then suddenly every time you use it, you have to you have to check it, and it's it's a little bit of a pain. But what it does is it pushes you to say, well, wait, do I really need this to be optional? Maybe I can, instead of using an option here, maybe I can just simplify my type and guarantee that the value is always there. And now what you've done when you do that is you've taken your type, and it used to have two variants, right? It could exist in either of two states. Maybe the pointer's there, maybe the pointer's not there. And when you say, wait a second, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to guarantee that the pointer's always there. Now you've like halved the state space of your type. Mm -hmm. And that is... It's really a big help, um, and so I think what's going on is that is that nullable pointers, implicitly nullable pointers, like you've got in Java and like you've got in C plus plus, invite programmers 
to create uh, types with many variations. They could be in many, many different states which need to be handled distinctly in a way that is invisible. And, mm -hmm. and that the reason that we have, you know, null pointers as a null pointer crashes as a problem or null pointer exceptions in Java, the reason that we have that kind of thing showing up so often uh, is because it, it confuses people. Um, and, and like, you know, the JavaScript has the same problem. You get, you know, defined is not a function, right? Or uh, <laughs> there's, you, you, get, you get these things showing up in consoles across the web. Um, and uh, yeah, the... Uh... Was the the I forget the the man's name who came up with the null concept and said it was like the, it, his biggest mistake ever. Or? Uh, Tony Hoare is his name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's actually the same last name as Graydon Hoare, who's the inventor of uh, is the inventor of Rust, or the, the original designer of Rust. Um, yeah, uh, Tony Hoare called it his his billion dollar mistake, uh, introducing null pointer into Algol. And the, uh -huh. and the funny thing was that uh, basically it, it, he said it wasn't something that he thought through very carefully. It was just sort of like, you know, as a drafting it, yeah, well, I mean, I guess you could uh, you could just make zero be a legitimate value and then you could have a check for it. And sure, yeah, it seems fine. Yeah, we'll throw it in. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, 30 years of people losing track. <laughs> oh, it's it's a plague for sure. Yeah. Um, once you don't have it, I think it, it's... Well, I mean, I, yeah, you still have option types, but you have to be explicit. And I think it's such a great, I think it's such a great change to have it explicit rather than anything anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You know? Option, option is such a boon, and it's like, and like I say, it's super low tech. This is not complicated type theory. This is this is just a, a an enum with two variants, and that's it. And it's and it's such a help. So, like in in Java, in C sharp, in in lots of other things, we have uh, values that that can't be uninitialized. Um, like, like an int is, is not going to be null in, in Java. It's going to yeah. have like value of zero or something. Yeah. Um, so how does that work in Rust? Do they move? Do they, are they defaulted? Okay. So, so, um, yeah, I mean, for, for the security, for Java to have the security properties that it wants to have, it has to make sure that your values are, that your variables are always initialized. Right. So it's got the same kinds of rules that, that Rust does. Um, so there are certain types, I think what you're getting at is, is copy types, that there are certain types that are so simple that it's kind of ridiculous that moving them would leave the source uninitialized. Like if I've got you know an integer in a variable, by the time I have moved that value to another variable, I've already made a complete independent copy of that value, right? You're just moving 64 bits from one spot to another, and there's no reason to leave the to, to mark the 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 source of that assignment as uh, as uninitialized because it's it's perfectly usable. Um, now that's very different from a string, right? If I have a string, a string has a pointer to a heap allocated buffer, and when I move it from one variable to another, having treating both of those as as live values is actually dangerous because you've got two pointers to the same value, and it's not clear uh, two pointers to the same heap allocated buffer, and it's not clear when that heap allocated buffer should be freed anymore, right? So it's mm -hmm. only types where the act of doing a move effectively gives you a, a working copy of a legitimate copy of the value. And so that would be types like int uh, or floating point values or care or booleans. And also if you just have a structure that only includes such types, right? If I've got a struct of two ints, right? Then certainly assigning that could legitimately, you know, I've effectively made a copy. So what Rust does is it says that there's a special class of values called copy values. And when a type is copy, is the way we say mm -hmm. it, uh, when a type is copy, 
that means that assigning a variable of that type to another, assigning a value of that type um, or passing it to a function does not move the, the value. It copies the value. Um, and so integer types are copy. Like I say, all the primitive types are copy. Um, and so if you pass an integer variable to a function, then that integer variable still has its value. If you assign that integer variable to some other variable, then it still keeps its value. Um, and, and this is sort of a, a ease of use thing because it's it's just silly to, to make people um, explicitly copy or clone values when, you know, when, when, they're, when they're trivial. Now, when you declare your own type, like, a, like I say, a, uh, the example that I gave before was if you make a struct of two values, like say you've got a point uh, that's got an mm -hmm. X and a Y coordinate, um, you may want that type to itself be copy, and you can ask Rusk to mark it as such. And as long as the value, as long as your type doesn't have anything, as long as your type consists only of members that are copy themselves, uh, Rust will say, yes, your value can be copy. Um, but if your type contains anything that like owns resources, like a string or a vector or a file descriptor or anything like that, then Rust refuses to make it copy. Uh, and so copy is really restricted to things where a bit-for-bit -bit duplication is all you need. Um, and if you need to do any kind of resource management, then you can't make a copy. But you can implement uh, the clone trait, and, and clone is just the, the implements the clone method, which makes a deep copy of the deep copy of the object. Um, uh, and so, like for example, if you wanted to get the C behavior of assignment, where you really did want three copies of your array with 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 strings, um, then you could actually call clone, and then you would get the C behavior. Um, but uh, but basically you couldn't you couldn't declare you, you can't uh, take something like that and make it make it a copy type copy is only for for simple things where a flat copy is all you need. And I think that like that doesn't seem that strange to me like coming from you know Java or C sharp or whatever where you know everything is like a reference type except for these certain you know fixed size primitives which act a hmm. little bit different. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's very much the same idea. I mean, well, let's see. the 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 trick is that. With those languages, the the reference types, like in Java and C sharp, uh, object types or you know vector types, um, I forget what they're. I guess they're arrays. They're called them arrays. Uh, yeah, object types and array types are reference types. And so when you you can assign one of those, but then you've now you've got two references to the same thing, and you've started to make it ambiguous who the owner of that value is, and then that's that's the kind of thing where you start needing to have. Uh, a garbage collector for that. Yeah. Earlier, you, I guess, right at the beginning of our interview, you, you talked about uh, references. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I want to, if I have my, my earlier example, my vector of strings, um, and I want to like print it out. Um, so I have a print function and it takes in a string and then it, whatever console writes it, um, getting, it will become the owner of the string I pass into it. And then it will print it out and then it will fall out of scope and then it will be free. So if I print my, if I print my vector, it ends up empty at the end. If I loop over it and print it, is that, is that correct? Well, so this is, yeah, that, that if you do it the wrong way, then that's correct. So the, the, like, like I said, we start off with, um, everything has a single owner and then you can, we said, well, that's, that's, that's a little bit too restrictive um, to make everything have a single owner. Let's let you move things around. And then we said, okay, well, moving things around is helpful for building things um, and tearing things down. 
But a lot of times we want to temporarily grant access to something uh, without changing its owner. And that's where references come in. So if you write uh, your, say, your printing function, and the type of that printing function's argument, the type of value passed to it is simply string, well, then that's a move. Mm -hmm. And when you call that function, you are moving ownership of the string into the printing function. And then either it's going to have to return it back to you, which is a pain, or it's just going to consume it, which is, which is silly. Um, and so what you can do instead is you can borrow a reference to it. And then the, if the argument type of that print function is reference to string, then what that means is that you borrow a reference to the string, and the ownership remains with you know, whatever owns the string to begin with. And then the print function gets to temporarily have access to the string and you know, go ahead and do, its, do, do whatever kind of formatting and I.O. that it wants to do. And then when it returns, that reference has gone out of scope, and uh, the, the, uh, the owner is now free again to do what it likes with it. But while a value is borrowed... If it's bar there are two ways to borrow a value. You can borrow a shared reference to a value, which just lets you look at it. You can't modify it, but you can make as many shared references to something as you want. Right? You can have twenty things all pointing the same thing, um, mm -hmm. or you can borrow a mutable reference, which is exclusive. You can only have one mutable reference to something um, at a time. And that grants the ability to modify the value. So, for example, if you wanted to call a function that stuck stuff onto the end of your string, you'd have to pass it to a mutable reference to the string. And then while that function is, is running, it has exclusive access to that string. Nobody else can even look at it. Not even the owner can look at the string. right? But when it returns, that mutable reference goes out of scope, and then the owner, again, has access to it. Um, so, And again, these are ways to grant access to temporarily let, say, a printing function examine a string or to let a uh, formatting function add stuff onto the end of the string, right? Um, and then when that temporary, when that borrow is done, uh, the owner gets control back. And these are, these are static guarantees. So uh, if I understand, then uh, at runtime, these are just pointers, like it might as well be C, but but to actually compile it, then we're doing static analysis and making sure that these rules hold. Right. What's going on? Yeah, certainly at runtime, these are just ordinary pointers. It's, it's, the, the runtime implementation is just exactly like what you'd find if you were passing something by reference in C++. Um, but uh, the different, and, the, and the only difference is that uh, a reference type, the type of a reference value, um, has a lifetime attached to it, which represents... Uh, the section of the program over which this reference is valid. So, for example, if you have a string that's not, not a reference yet, if you have a local variable that's a string, it's local to some block in your program, right? The lifetime of that string is from the point of declaration to the end of the block, or from the point of declaration to the point that it gets moved, the value gets moved someplace else, right? But until that point, mm -hmm. the value is sitting right there, okay? When you create it, when you borrow a reference to that string, the type of that reference says this type may only be used within the, 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 the lifetime of that value until it gets moved or destroyed, um, or the things that it calls, right? And so you, mm -hmm. if you ever try to assign a value of that reference type to you know, something outside the lifetime of, the, of the, the underlying string, that's a compile time error. That's a type error, 
Um, when you call a function, the function actually has to take uh, parameters, has to take, um, they're like type parameters, they're, stat they're compile time uh, parameters uh, that represent the lifetime of the thing that's being passed to it. And the function has to be okay with getting an object of a restricted lifetime. And so, and so it's really, so it's really kind of, it's really kind of nice. If a function is going to go and store a pointer to something in some big data structure somewhere, then in the type of that function, the reference that it accepts is going to be, it's going to, it's going to say, by the way, I need a really big lifetime. And so if you try to pass to it a reference to some local variable, you get a compile time error because you're trying to call a function and pass it a reference and the function says that it needs a reference of this really big, long lifetime, unconstrained lifetime. Uh, but then that's not the, the, the lifetime of the value, the reference that you're passing it doesn't satisfy that. And so you get uh, a compile time error if you try to pass uh, a pointer to a, one of your locals to something that's going to that's gonna try to retain it for longer than that. So in the simple case, um, like so I take my print function and now it takes a reference of string. Um, into it and it prints. Mm -hmm. um, so um, where's the lifetime parameter there, or is it? So a lot of times there there is a lifetime parameter there, but a lot of times you don't have to write it. For example, if you just have a print function, maybe that print function takes a single argument, you know, a string of type shared reference to string, okay, and it doesn't return any value. That type signature is really simple, um, and you could write out the lifetime in that signature and put the and, and name the lifetime that that reference has, but because functions like this are really common, um, uh, Rust has sort of a shorthand. If when it, it'll look over the signature of the function, and if, like, say, if all of the if if it's very obvious from looking at the signature of the function what the lifetimes involved need to be, then it will actually go and stick them in for you. But they, the the lifetimes really are there. You just they're just being elided. There is a, a type parameter, I guess, and that type parameter is the, the lifetime right. uh, that this will run. A, and like when, when it infers it, I'm assuming it just infers it to be that the lifetime of the thing I pass in must be... I'm just, I'm having trouble picturing how it infers it, I guess. Okay. Well, so let, let's, let me actually spell out what the, what the real signature, what, what you write out in your code, what you actually put in your code is you say print and you say open paren s colon ampersand string close right and that means that there's this function print and it takes a parameter named s whose type is shared reference to string and then it doesn't return any value what that is shorthand for is print and then in angle brackets you say tick a like a single quote a and that means the lifetime named a and these are angle brackets so this is a type level parameter this is a compile time parameter um, and then the, the argument type is actually ampersand tick a, lifetime a, string. So in other words, when, what this declaration means is for any lifetime a outside the call, mm -hmm. I'm going to take a reference to, I can take a reference restricted to that lifetime to a string, and, and then I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to return anything. And so when you write this function, Rust will look at that and say, well, okay, Tick A, this lifetime that you put in, it could be, you know, very tightly wrapped around the, the point of the call, right? Maybe this variable was created just before you did the call, and it's going to be destroyed just after you do the call. So you can't make, you can't assume that this lifetime A is any longer than, you know, pretty much the call, the point of call on the caller. 
And so if you try to actually store that reference someplace that, that lives longer, that's the, that, that won't work. It, you'll, you'll, you'll get a compile time error. So the callee makes, uh, uh, the callee makes uh, conservative assumptions about what the lifetime could be. And if you try to um, do something more ambitious with that, over ambitious with that reference, then it will say, I'm sorry, your, your ambitions are not supported by, you know, the constraints that we have on this lifetime. I get it. So I think, I think this clicked for me. So the, the default is, is any lifetime. And then what that has to mean is that, uh, it can't do anything with it outside. Like it has to, uh, it can't store it anywhere because, um, conceivably after it's called, then, then that, uh, the thing passed in could fall out of scope and therefore be uninitialized. Yeah. Right? It's not, it's not quite the, the default isn't quite any lifetime. The default is, um, any lifetime that encloses the call. Any lifetime that encloses the call. Right. If I am taking, if I'm taking a reference as an argument, then clearly that argument must have been lived when I was past it. Okay. Yeah. At the point of the call, that reference must be legit. And so therefore I can assume that it is legit for the duration of this call, but not any time before or after that. Um, but, but yes, otherwise the effect is just as you said. Because if I have, uh, so a lot of the times you don't even have to worry about this lifetime because I'm trying, what I'm trying to come up with an example is when we're returning one argument, but the lifetime of the two parameters could, could vary, right? Is right. that... Right. Okay. So, so you're imagining, let's take a function that um, takes references to two values and randomly returns a reference to one or the other. Well, that sounds even more complex. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking of if these two variables have two lifetimes and we return one, then uh, we would need to specify that the returning one, which lifetime it had. Okay. You can do that, but actually that one works out okay. And I'm, I'm trying to see if I can actually explain why it's okay. So, so the, the, the lifetimes that show up in a function signature get used in two ways. One, they get used to check the body, the definition of the function itself. And two, they get used to check the call of the function. So, mm -hmm. so it's clear that in this particular case where we're going to take to the, for the body of the function, for the definition of the function, we're going to take two references and then one of them is going to, uh, we're going to return a reference to one of them. Um, well, it's pretty clear that the function can't, uh, it's not storing it anywhere. It's just handing it back. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's legit. And so you're not going to get any problems with the definition of that function. Where things get interesting is in the caller. The caller is going to pass in two references to things with different lifetimes, and then it's going to get back mm -hmm. a reference. Those two references that get passed in are initially, from the caller's side, they could be anything. Right. The, this this call uh, doesn't impose. Uh, it doesn't basically. It's not going to restrict that, and so it's not going to restrict those two lifetimes very much. Um, and what it will do is it will actually say, well, okay, are you passed in. If you if you treat them both as having the same lifetime, it will say, well, okay, which lifetime works for both of them? The largest lifetime that works for both of them is the smaller of the the lifetimes of the two things that you borrowed references to. Ah. Uh. So it picks, it picks the most restrictive. It, it picks it picks the largest one that is still safe, and so you will get what you will get is a reference to um, you. The reference that it returns will be usable within the smaller of the the two lifetimes. You've got two lifetimes. You take you have two objects with different lifetimes. You borrow references to each of them, and then you call this function. The reference that you get back will be restricted to lie within 
the lifetime of the of the 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 object that has the shorter lifetime. So you, with your previous example of like returning randomly one, then it, it still can just pick the most the the most restrictive lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, somebody told me before like uh, it's good to have a technical podcast, but you shouldn't you shouldn't talk about code. Well, it's, I think I've broken that rule. <laughs> We've totally broken that rule. <laughs> I, I, I really, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I hope this is going to be okay without like a whiteboard or something. <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, I, th- I mean, to me, so like, it's great. I hear lots of things about Rust and people complain about the border checker and whatever. Right? Yeah. But if you don't have examples, um, like you don't really understand it. So, I mean, I think the things we've talked about are, are very small pieces of code, but they, they help to highlight, um, you know, what, what it actually means when people say they're fighting with the borrow check word, right? Like, yeah. So, so ju- just so you know, um, th- I don't really fight with the borrow checker much anymore. I've, i I can kind of anticipate how it's going to behave and how it's going to think. Um, and I have coworkers who don't, who don't really fight with it. A lot of what's going on is not so much learning to deal with the borrow checker, but rather learning to structure the way that you use your values in a way that is that is compatible with the borrow checker, right? Mm. Um, and I think that that's actually where why why people uh, feel like they're struggling with it is that they are having their ideas about how they wanted to structure their program sort of pared back and and trimmed back to this uh, very sort of uh, restricted uh, model that that Rust pushes you into. Um, and and of course, when you're being told that you can't do something that you're pretty sure is fine, uh, that's you know you, you're you're going to chafe against that. Um, but it turns out that really almost everything that you want to do, you can fit into uh, the model pretty well, you know, with with exceptions, and then there are workarounds for it. Um, th- th- I, I think I mentioned the fir- in the first podcast, I had a lunch with a friend, and they said, you know, it looks to me like Rust doesn't let me create cycles. I said, well, yeah, cycles have ambiguous ownership. And he says, you know, mm. as a programmer, I need cycles. I use them all the time. I, I, what, what he's saying is 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 legit. Um, but it turns out that you can actually do fine. There are there are ways to. There are other approaches that you can take, and the payoff that you get is uh, a static judgment about the viability and correctness of your program, and that's really uh, nothing to shake a stick at. Uh, it's really something that. That you know, I don't. That I really miss when I have to go back to C plus um, plus. So it, it's a challenge, and it's it's a worthwhile challenge to do. So I don't feel like uh, the borrow checker is really something you have to fight with. The borrow checker is simply it's the discipline that you're learning, and this discipline is a valuable way to structure programs. The, the lifetimes portion, at first glance, it it's, seems a little complicated. But then when I think of the idea that that if I call something that's going to store. Uh, what I pass into it globally, like it can't hide that from me. Right. Like it, it's like, cause I, I think a lot more time gets spent like maintaining code or, or debugging issues and to, to have this explicit information uh, right there in the signature, you don't even have to, you know, dig into what it does. It's incredibly, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, like right now at work, I'm, I'm dealing with something where we have workers that send messages to there and I need to have some of those messages be delayed. Uh, for example, something's being debugged, it better not be delivering its messages while you're sitting at a breakpoint, right? Um, and that means that I'm changing when these messages get delivered. And it turns out that it's very possible to change it so that the messages get delivered after the, the thing they're delivering to is gone, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's something where it absolutely would be a type error in Rust. Um, 
or at least it would be something that that the channel, uh, the communications channel, would would recognize and, and cope with properly. Uh, but in in C plus plus, I get I get not only do I get a crash, which is you know it's not unfamiliar. Right? I've done debug crashes before, <laughs> but <laughs> it's like it, I have to hunt it down. In Rust, it would have just it would have just told me. So it's it's kind of it's kind of a pain. So I think we, you've you've made a case that that kind of there's a style to Rust and that as a C plus plus developer, if you can if you can adopt it, there's there's big payoffs. Right. So, but as a as a developer who's never too far from a garbage collector, you know, I, I'm used to kind of building more. I'm used to not worrying about references and right. kind of having things point to things all the time. Right. Um, so is there a benefit to these constraints for somebody from a GC world? Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, surprising the sort of the, the, the restrictions on borrowing actually have valuable for even, for even simple single threaded code. One thing that kind of bug that you have cropping up in complicated systems from time to time is where you have a function that is say, say you have a function that's traversing some data structure, right? Or it's operating on the elements of some data structure and for each thing that it does it's gonna it's gonna call out to somebody right you will f- occasionally come across these bugs where you you're calling out to somebody and then they go do something else and then they invoke an operation that goes back and modifies the very data structure that you are traversing mm-hmm. okay and so so the way the stack looks is you've got this iteration in one of the callers Right, it's iterating this data structure, and then one of these callees is modifying the data structure as it's being iterated over. Now, in general, it's really difficult to specify exactly what you want from situations like that. Uh, and in Java, there's something called the concurrent modification exception, uh, which you'll get uh, if you try to do this. And in Rust, those bugs simply can't occur. They are compile time problems that get that get reported before your program ever runs. And so. Rust is actually uh, pushing you towards structures that always make it clear when uh, modifications and things could could ever happen, and that gives you uh, it gives you like a, a really nice f- uh, sense of confidence when you when you get a, a mutable pointer to something, you know that you have exclusive access to it, and that while you were working on it, nobody else anywhere in the system is going to come in and change it or modify it, and I think that that's actually a really valuable thing to have in in function signatures or, or in data structures uh, some kind of uh, promise that you're that, that, that either you are looking at something that's being shared amongst a lot of people and it won't change or you are going to modify this and you are the only person who can see your modifications uh, and it's some it's a property that I miss when I go back to to GC languages uh, and I so so I mean Yes, it is more flexible to be able to use to lean on the GC, just create whatever kind of references you want. Um, but I think I, I do feel like I'm missing information that I wish I had, and that Rust requires you to provide. There's a there's a theme. Rust is making a lot of things explicit in the type system. Mm-hmm. We talk about the option types, like yep. that one. Other other languages have seen that. You know, make it explicit if something can be can be not can be none or nothing. Yeah. But also now we're taking it and we're saying all these lifetimes have to be mm-hmm. explicit. Who has access to the thing? Who could be modifying this thing? What sort of what mode of access is it, is it, is it in at this point in the program? That's also explicit. And that's just super valuable. Well, thanks for coming on for another interview, Jim. It's been great. Sure. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah.